This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Shane Hewitt. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, is it possible that your cell phone could actually help your relationship? Katie Okodeli is the founder and CEO of Agape, a relationship app that could help and deepen your connection with your partner over the phone. She also shares how a brush with death gave her the idea to create this app. The world of weird things. Yes, Greg Fish goes to outer space as we look at a very hungry black hole and if there may be a ninth planet in our solar system. And are you okay with taking a joke? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with a joke? Brendan Kelly, can you take a joke at your own expense. Yeah, I can take a joke at my own expense as long as it's not too terribly mean, but I mean all the time. I Have get... you ever heard somebody say, Brendan, you can't take a joke? Oh, uh, yeah, when I was young, I was a sensitive child, a very sensitive child. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> that, you see, I think that's the better way to ask the question. It's not whether you think you can take a joke is whether you've heard other people say no you can't take a joke but that's when you're a child you could certainly take a joke now and if you couldn't you're certainly in the wrong business aren't you yeah i'm definitely on the wrong show that's and, for sure. and the, <laughs> yeah, the wrong show in the wrong business ryan o'donnell can you take a joke I like to think that I've gotten much better at it. I used to take jokes really personally, and I find that people who take them really personally tend to not be as funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's it's a it, there's this amazing episode of The Office where um, the main character Michael Scott, the manager, falls into a koi pond, and he's so embarrassed about falling into a koi pond and that he just can't operate. And then uh, Jim, one of the other characters on the show, says, uh, "If you can just." make fun of yourself for a split second everybody will forget about it and they'll just laugh along and you'll laugh too and you move on and that, i watched that when i was you know when i was probably 18 for the first time and i actually really thought about it in the context of the show and i've tried to take that approach and yeah it, it, it's fun to poke fun at yourself sometimes and unless obviously it's like directly offensive there, uh, there's obviously a line but i'd say all in all i think i'm pretty I'm much better at taking the joke than i was in high school when Everything felt way too personal. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. Um, unfortunately, and this is the the kind of the darker side of me, but uh, it gets even funnier when somebody can't take a joke, and uh, you know it kind of continues along the lines, and they're not really taking the joke, and they're digging themselves in further and further. I know it's cruel. I'd like to get past that. It's not the best part of Bruce Claggett, but you know sometimes. That is just uh, the funniest part. You know what I mean? Uh, or am I just the jerk? No, I think I, yeah. I think you get it. Again, it's yeah. like a fine line of when it's a jerk and when it's funny. You know, and here's something else I, I, I noticed. Uh, sometimes there is a difference between how guys joke and women joke. And uh, I've my wife has definitely pointed this out. She says, you know, you and your friends, you're always just picking on each other. Like you're always making fun of each other. And she's just aghast with it. Um, but that's what we do. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of, uh, you know, it shows affection, I think. Um, but self-deprecating humor, you know, some people can do it, some people can't. 
some people take jokes all too terribly seriously, and others take it like champs. You know where I'm going with this? We're going back to Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Love him or hate him. He is trying his very best right now to make sure that he takes one joke very, very well. As we all know by now, he swallowed that bee during a press conference over the weekend. Not coming from the uh, government per se, but the premier. It's coming from the health sector. <laughs> Holy Christ. I just swallowed a bee. Oh my Holy God. Christ. I knew that little bugger. Oh. Drown him. Drown him. I'm good. He's down here buzzing around right now. He has, a lot of, he has a lot of real estate. Now, if that was in the clip, okay, this is going to be replayed over and over again. Sure is. Um, <laughs> and the part, as I mentioned, uh, I think last night about this whole thing was uh, the sound of the crunch. It works so much better on radio. And for whoever got that, whoever had the microphone right there, the swallowing of the bee, the bee in the mouth and the actual crunch. Wow. Could you ever picture that? Anyways, that was then, this is now. And this is how he started his speech in his first public appearance since that bee crunching instant. Boy, what, what a warm, warm welcome. And <laughs> hold on. Hold on. There, I finally got him. You know, he's been, <laughs> he's, been, he's been hanging around for a while. He's twice the size that he came in at, I'm telling you. Yeah, quite the showman, Doug Ford. The internet has made hundreds of memes of this incident, and, and they're all excellent. Someone made a Twitter account dedicated to Doug Ford's esophagus. Others uh, dressed up as bees. And say hello to new Buckaby. The Buckaby promise uh, from Canadian comedian Brittle Star. Thank you for coming. I have a message from the government of Ontario. As many of you saw, the Premier swallowed a bee on live television, which generated a lot of attention for Ontario. And Ontario is open for business, does not apply to some ERs. That's why I'm excited to announce Premier Ford's new Buck-a-Bee promise. It's very simple. For every live bee you swallow, the province will give you $1. Which brings me to my second announcement. In an effort to recover some of the money we lost when we gave up the whole license plate sticker thing, we're launching our own dating app called Bumbler. The app is the perfect place to meet other people who have swallowed live bees and can share the challenges that that life choice will bring, like fear of honey or stomach buzz. No questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll joke a minute with that. I give that whole idea a B plus. Or, uh, ha, ha, yeah, ha, right. Ha, very good. Depending upon how much buzz there is about it. Yeah. Well, Thank crickets. Oh, yeah. Honey. I guess yeah. it must be the time of the morning, right? Yeah. That's why I hear crickets. Okay, okay let's move on. Are you okay with? Yes. Are you okay with the heat? Let's start with Brendan. Are you okay with the heat? Oh. It's been really hot in Vancouver, yeah. and it's uh, going to get hotter during the daylight hours today and tomorrow. Yeah, I'm seeing 32 today on my app, which is pretty hot for right here, right here on the coast. Um, and even warmer as you head in yeah. away from Vancouver, heading east right into the Fraser Valley, maybe even into the mid-30s. Yeah, no, I love... I. I'm odd. I love the heat. I absolutely love, love the heat. 
I drove into, I was from um, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado down into Las Vegas in June. And at the peak of the Rocky Mountains when I left, this was June of 2014, when I left, my little car temperature thing said um, like seven because we were way up high, Mm -hmm. high altitude. And by the evening when I got into Las Vegas after, you know, a long 10-hour drive, my little car temperature thing said 46. Yep. Yes, it was hot and it did not it uh it got down to a low of 38 at night. But you know what? I, I love the heat and I think one day with my dual citizenship because my mom's American, I may retire to the desert. Ah, uh, yes. Well, yeah. my dad was born in Oklahoma, raised, uh, you know, uh, in the Okanagan. But, uh, you know, I've got uh, some of that uh, heat in uh, in my blood. I, too, love the heat, I think. Um, but uh, I also sweat in front of a 60-watt light bulb. So there you go. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a love-hate relationship. Uh, I love when it gets super hot, and I also go running for the pool, the lake, or the air conditioner, so it's a love-hate type thing for me. Now, Ryan O'Donnell, I know you've got some very strong opinions about that, and that's why I left you to the last on this. But I'll uh, play it straight up. Ryan, do you love the heat? Are you okay with the heat? I am not okay with the heat, Bruce. I'm not. Look, I, I get it. But I just think there's objective facts here that we are ignoring. Okay? Let's oh, compare wow. cold versus This hot. is going to be a downer, okay? isn't it? it? No, I just let's compare cold versus hot for a second, okay? When it's hot, if you want to cool off, you only have so many things you can do. You can remove layers of clothing. You could put on 15 fans like there are in my room right now. But the heat just lingers. But if it's cold, you can put more layers on. And I would argue after two layers, you're probably fine. And that's the thing. If I could wear a sweater and pants every day for the rest of my life, I would be a happy man. 18 degrees and cloudy is where I thrive. And uh, I am looking, f- I'm actually looking forward to the fall. I, I, I wish fall was the, the like yearly temperature all the time. Okay. So that's me. Ryan, you're a great guy. Really, you know, from what I've learned about you, you really are a great guy. From what I've heard about you, you're a great guy. But um, can I, can I just say something kind of, I it's, I don't mean this to be mean, but you've you've been kind of whiny about uh, about your room and just how hot your I room know. is being. And this is not just uh, for this show, but for the last couple shows, it's come out a few times. I've got to ask you: Do you have a thermometer? Do we know? Like, is it really this yes. bad? I want proof. Uh, it's 26.1 degrees in my room right now. Oh, 26.2. That's hot for inside. Yeah. That's very very uncomfortable for inside. That's uncomfortable. See, it's just, I, yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Look, I I can also, I think depends on the setting. Like I, I worked at a summer camp for many years and, uh, being in an environment where it was always hot but you're always outside and being active. I was okay with that. I was able to like, yeah, it's hot. It's the summer. It's fine. But working from home, being home and just trying to escape the heat and not being able to, that angers me. I don't know. I'm just, I'm very Canadian. I like it cold. Okay. It's what I'm used to. <laughs> and it must I'm, be I'm, the I'm Irish not... blood in you too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, we'll give that one to you. I'm lucky. I do have air conditioning in uh, two of the rooms, um, not just for for me, which I enjoy, and I'll have a nice 
cool Napa, even as the sun starts to come up uh, with the air conditioning. But it's also for the pets, for the cat and the dog. And um, and we just want to make sure that they have the best environment for that. So, you know, it really doesn't bother me. I've got the air conditioning in the car when I drive. And the rest of the time, I could just look out the window and think, oh, yeah, summertime. Really love it. But it is hot. It is very summer-like in most of the country. And, you know, for the most part, it's not just us humans who are trying to beat that heat. It's squirrels, too. In New York, temperatures reached over 35 degrees. I'm thinking in uh, their scale, that must be over 100 or getting close to 100. That's the upper 90s. Okay, which means that the local squirrels had to do something called spluting. Yeah, that's the thing, spluting. The city's parks uh, urged residents not to worry about the health of the squirrels. That's just what they do. They splute. If a squirrel is doing that, you will see them sprawled on the ground with their legs behind them, kind of like when they come home from a workout and just pass out. This is happening in other parts of the world, too. And here is a similar report that we get from San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio Police Chief William McManus tweeted out this picture. He says he was leaving City Hall and found this squirrel laid out in the shade. He thought the animal was dead, but it ran off as soon as he tried to get close. And when Chief McManus left, the squirrel was back trying to get cool again. Well, it turns out this wasn't the only squirrel in town trying to find some shade. Take a look here. Dozens of you at home shared your own photos of squirrels taking a break from the heat. If you didn't know, there's an actual term for this. It's called spluting. It's when squirrels lay face down with all four paws on a cool surface to keep or to help keep their body temperatures low. They can be seen spluting on the ground, in trees, or even on rooftops. Yeah, spluting. Ever heard of that term, Brendan, Brian? No. In the context of other animals, yes. Like, it's just kind of like a goofy... It's just really funny, like, hearing you say it and, like, news anchors say it. Spluting! Then he was spluting! It's just a very funny... It's an objectively delightful word. (laughs) Yeah, well, that uh, according to uh, Grant Barrett uh, and co-host of the radio show with uh, the way that they use the word splooting comes from the language that we typically use for dogs. I, I guess dog sploot. And I think I have seen that before. Never do the word. Uh, here are some other examples. Bork. Heard that term? Uh, I believe she's a singer from Iceland, right? That's Bjork. No, that's a I version of a bark. Huh. Um, sure. Mlem. Yeah. yeah it's not mine. something from Ikea. Yeah, Mlem. I was going to say, uh, out of the Ikea <laughs> catalog. Ikea yeah. thing, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a kind of a tongue movement. Yeah. It's like when they stick their tongue out like halfway. Yep. And then immediately bring it back in. That's a malim. And this one, this one I actually do know, but I just learned it uh, this summer because of Sketch, the new Labradoodle puppy that we'll be talking about more this week. But uh, a pupperino. Yep. <sighs> Sounds like a spice. 
It does sound like a spice, doesn't it? Paparinos are really popular now. When you take dogs for a walk, there are certain places uh, like your Starbucks or some of the uh, coffee shops, uh, other coffee shops, independent ones, uh, ice cream places that offer a little something extra for your dog. And uh, one of the big treats that we found that Sketch likes is the Paparino. So there you go. Oh, Oh, wait. Do you mean the Puppuccino? From start, you know is what a- it is a puppuccino. Yeah, at Starbucks, yeah. I've got it written down here as a paparino. I wonder well, if they're, they're two, two different, different things. Pa- paparino is referring to an actual puppy. That's like, look at this little paparino. Look at this little dog. And I thought they were talking about the puppuccino. No, it's two. Look at that. Two entirely whole, different things. We have a whole dictionary of dumb ways to describe <laughs> dogs, and I love it. <laughs> There you go. I still think it sounds like a spice. And, and either one. Yes. Either one is a spice. spice. Let's bail on this one. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Shane Hewitt on the Shift. Shane will be back on Monday. Ryan O'Donnell and Brendan Kelly also with us. And I want to turn our attention to modern love romance, and the age-old challenge of communication. But you know, it is 2022, and in an era where we have dating apps for meeting that perfect somebody, do we actually have a way to facilitate a longer relationship and improve communication? The answer may be somewhat surprising. And in terms of an app that's come out now, we do have one that's gaining attention on TikTok and other social media platforms. The app is called Agape. Well, we have a chance to talk with Caddy Aquadili, the founder and chief executive officer. Caddy, thanks so much, first of all, for joining us. But I've got to ask, what is this all about? Is it the modern way to, you know, facilitate the best relationship going? Yeah, so Agape is a relationship wellness app for couples designed to spark meaningful conversation. So the way it works is we send couples a daily reminder to answer a new question, and they can either select their topic or have one chosen for them uh, by our happy algorithm. And the questions were created by a clinical psychologist on our team named Ron, who's been researching romantic relationships for over 20 years and has over 100 peer-reviewed papers on romantic and familial relationships. And users aren't able to see each other's responses until they both respond. So it's kind of like starting your day with a love note from your partner. And then we have series, which are deeper dives into more specific topics. So, um, for example, uh, work-life balance or after an argument, before difficult conversation, moving in together. We have series of questions for that. And couples get a lot of value out of Agape. It helps spark conversations that they wouldn't normally have, um, as well as just give them an opportunity to feel connected when they're apart. Now, our producer, Ryan O'Donnell, has been using this, and he absolutely loves it. Uh, He and his partner think it's just great. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, so maybe you can explain how it works a little bit more. Um, I would imagine that you have a couple, um, 
both downloading it independently on their smartphones or devices, and they both get one question a day, the same question, and then it, the responses get shared later? How does that all work? Yeah, so if you download the app, you get a pairing code that you can send to your partner, and then once they add that pairing code, your accounts are linked, and then you can actually answer as many questions as you want each day, uh, but typically couples answer one question a day, and your partner will get a notification. So say I open the app, I answer a question. Let's say my question was, describe a time you were thankful to have your partner by your side to help you through something difficult. I answer the question, my husband will get a notification. Caddy just answered a question, a response to see what she says. When he sends his response, my response becomes unblurred. And then he could send more messages and we can have a deeper conversation about our answers. Where did the idea for Agape come from? Now, you're the founder and chief executive officer, but it's your idea, isn't it? Yeah, so my journey with Agape is quite interesting. So prior to entrepreneurship, I was on a path of becoming a physician scientist, and I was doing a lot of academic uh, research in the medical field. Um, But unfortunately, along the way, I got diagnosed with a life-threatening heart condition, and I was quite sick um, for about a year, and the heart condition I was diagnosed with has a pretty high mortality rate, like 50% before age 20, so I wasn't sure what the outcome would be, and like many people who get very sick, I started having all these really deep conversations with the people that I loved. Um, And I learned so much about them and it was things that we didn't talk about often. So then when I got a bit better and I was reflecting back on that period, I was like, why did it take almost dying for me to have these types of conversations? We should be having these types of conversations daily. It shouldn't take something so catastrophic to talk about these things. So I thought if we prompt people to have these more meaningful conversations, then they wouldn't have to experience the extremes of life, which tends to bring those types of conversations out. Now, did the idea of having this uh, as an app come to mind immediately, or were you thinking there's got to be a way? Which came first, the technology or the uh, actual system of talking? I would say the questions, like the idea of prompting it came first, and We started with like an SMS-based beta that texted couples a question. We transitioned to an app because we wanted to do more personalization. But I would say the original idea was just prompting meaningful conversation. And then the app just became like a great way to do that efficiently. And Agape is uh, already getting a great deal of attention. How long has it been in app form? Yeah, so we released the app in the App Store in 2020, but we didn't really do any marketing. Uh, We were fortunate that one of our users decided on her own to create a TikTok video about her experience with Agape, and the TikTok blew up. Uh, So that was February of last year. We got like over 100,000 installs overnight, and... We've just been growing uh, since TikTok has continued to be a great acquisition channel for us to reach new people. Did you expect that growth? No, definitely not. I was like sitting in a CVS parking lot and I started getting all these notifications 
And I checked our analytics platform and it said like 20,000 new accounts created. And I was like, what? What's going on? So it was completely, I, I didn't know what was happening. Like I was so confused because I didn't know about the TikTok video at first. And then finally, when I figured out it came from the TikTok video, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go home and get to my computer. Wow. And what do you think is uh, the cornerstone of that success? Was there just an appetite for this and uh, maybe it was hitting the right demographic? Yeah, so the video that that user made was talking about long-distance relationships and TikTok's algorithm pushed it out to couples in long-distance relationships. And couples in long-distance relationships really love agape because it takes something that they already do, which is use their phones as their primary method of communicating with their partner and makes it even better. So it just really resonated with that audience. What are the typical questions that you would find on this? Um, If somebody was to download it that's already in a relationship, what could they expect? What are they going to be diving into? Yeah, so we have dozens of different categories. We have like gratitude questions, like what's something your partner did in the past week that made you feel valued. We have reminiscing questions, like uh, what's a date you wish you could create. We have balancing, managing finances, pregnancy, engaged, after an argument, before a difficult conversation, living together, uh, spirituality. We have some spicy questions, so like foreplay, sex. We have a lot of different questions, and we add new categories every week. Um, ultimately, we want to have hundreds and hundreds of categories for pretty much any topic that a couple could ever want to discuss. And what have you found? Which categories right now are the most popular or have the greatest growth? Yeah, people really like the spicy questions for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they really like those. And the Moving In Together series, a lot of people really like that. And then obviously uh, we have a long-distance relationship category. And since a lot of our couples are in long-distance relationships, um, that series uh, is very popular. There's about like 14 million couples in the U.S. in long-distance relationships. So I'm thinking that this is uh, widespread across so many different topics, and there must be people coming to it for different reasons. What is a commonality? If you're basically to describe agape, what is the one thing it does? I think it helps people feel close when they're apart. So like if you have two people in a relationship, even if they live together and they're pretty busy, um, Agape really helps them if they, one is maybe like a stay-at-home partner and the other one's in the workplace and they have significant periods of their time um, of their day when they're separated, Agape really helps them. I'm not sure if a lot of people know this, but the average couple only spends two and a half hours together each day, not including sleep. Oh, I would. So for couples, yeah. (laughs) So for couples who that's their experience, Agape like helps them keep close. And then we find that users do the questions when they're apart, and then they continue the conversation when they see each other. So if they're a couple who lives together, that's later on at night as like pillow talk. And if they're a couple that's in a long distance relationship, 
uh, they continue the conversations when they meet in person. We actually are doing our first peer-reviewed study on agape and how it's affecting couples, and we saw a lot of really uh, positive effects with just one month of use. Now, you came to it for a very real reason, a life-changing event or a diagnosis in your life. Um, do you think other people are coming to it for that reason, or do you expect that, or are they coming to it for possibly curiosity and recreation and then finding something else? Yeah, I would say most people come to it for curiosity and recreation. Uh, it's very lighthearted, so we're not necessarily attracting people who are considering couples counseling. Um, I would say agape is like a question game, and it just happens to have a significant impact on your relationship. So when I, I try to make it so that uh, average couple who's very happy in their relationship would be attracted to it and get a lot of value out of it. Uh, we didn't make it so that you needed to be experiencing something extreme like I was in order to get there. We're trying to make it more proactive. We say relationship wellness is like brushing your teeth. It's best when done daily. So you don't have to like wait until you have a bunch of cavities or a bunch of issues in your relationship. You can do it while things are still great. Caddy, you might be saving some relationships. How do you feel about that? Yeah. It feels like a privilege. It, it, it's really rewarding. I wanted to be a surgeon, so it was always important for me to help people. And when I got sick and I was like, that goal um, wasn't a uh, good path for me anymore. I was hoping that I could find something that feels equally fulfilling and we have a lot of really amazing like reviews and testimonials day and share them with our team. And it feels like I feel extremely lucky to be working on something that's helping so many couples. How do you uh, monetize this? Uh, I, it's a free app, first of all, for people to know it's a free app. But how are you going to make money off it? Yeah. Yeah, so Agape is free to download and free to use. We have like over a thousand free questions. When we were uh, evaluating different monetization methods, it was important to us to protect user privacy. So we decided on the freemium model because we felt like that would allow us to have an app that people can get value out of even if they can't afford premium. So we have an annual premium um, subscription. So certain topics are behind a paywall, and it's forty nine ninety nine USD a year for two people. So it's about like twenty five dollars mm. um, a person a year, and people respond really well to it. There's a lot of apps that advertise themselves as free, but it's literally like one single thing in the app that's free. Yeah. Over half of our app is free. Um, so it was important to me that like, even if someone didn't pay, they could use Agape. And we have users, we have a feature called streaks um, that your streak goes up for every new question you answer each day. We have people with like over 200 day streak that, uh, that are still on the free version. So our free version is very comprehensive, but we have a premium subscription version for uh, $49.99 a year. 
we've been talking about because uh, your idea for this was based on couples, romantic couples. But could really close friends or uh, family members find some use in that? Right now, our content is centered around couples, but we have had some users report like that they're using Agape with a friend, which I think is really cool. Wow. Where do you go from here? Yeah, I would like to just keep growing and adding more content. Um, Internally, the metric we focus the most on is retention. So how do we build a habit-forming product that's also good for people? And then we run experiments to see if we can improve retention, um, as well as continuing to do research studies to examine the efficacy of Agape to make sure that we're not just building a great business, but making a great impact on our user base. Caddy, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us to share not only this app, but uh, the story behind it. And I think that's really important. Thank you. Thank that's Caddy Oquidelli. Uh, just amazing technology uh, used for uh, something that really does have some sort of meaning because she's saving relationships. Uh, whether she knew it or not, she's uh, increasing communication. And uh, that's got to be a good feeling when you come away from uh, coming up with uh, something that's just a tech device, just an app. But uh, knowing that somewhere out there, you've increased communication and you brought back some life to a relationship. That's my take back. That's only one side of it. But Ryan O'Donnell, um, you've been looking at this app for a bit. Uh, What's your impression? What do you think? I think it's really easy to underestimate the power of asking a simple question and answer. I mean, I'll tell you the first prompt I get, I ever got was uh, name something that your partner did that made you smile. And so it came up on the app. And for me, I see Laura typed out this big thing and it was all blurred. And so I see oh, big thing. Okay. So I now type this big ooey gooey gushy thing and then answers revealed. And Laura's was like, sometimes you say things that are so aggressively Canadian, it's cringy, but I love it so much. And mine was this ooey gooey thing. And it was hilarious. We laughed about it. We ended up talking about it for a really long time. And, and uh, you know, just those simple prompts and, and having something to kind of itch you to do it, uh, I think really helps uh, keep the relationship uh you know, it's when she mentioned in the interview there that, uh, you know, you only really see your partner for two hours a day. Yeah. That's not very much, is it? It makes those little moments but I could believe it. make it feel a lot longer than two, two hours. And yes, absolutely, I can believe that. So as someone who's going into a long-distance relationship uh, shortly, uh, it's uh, reassuring to know that there's apps like that out there. And, uh, you know, the the dating scene on apps is is brutal. You know, Tinder and and. Uh, Bumble and all those apps, there's a lot of trial yeah. and, and lots of error. And I think, you know, apps that try to focus on that inherent connection rather than just, oh, you're attractive, swipe left, swipe right. That's important. That's really important for growing and building a relationship. So, I Brendan like Kelly, you have not used uh, the app, uh, but I'm going to put this question to you because most of what we've been coming to know about gadgets 
and uh, and apps and that type of thing. Uh, the conventional wisdom with most of it is it takes you away from a relationship. It's a disconnect. And we're now into a world of our mobile devices doing a disservice to communication. Uh, what's your thought? Well, I think it's great. Um, I think it... Uh a lot of the the apps uh, on phones take us, as you say, away. So I've made a conscious effort to try to look at, you know, apps that bring me back to something creative or something something good. Uh, like I download a lot of philosophy apps or things like that. But this is great because, um, as a natural born introvert, this helps bring people back in to themselves and what they are feeling, which I think uh, uh, will strengthen any relationship. And I like the idea that she also said that she was opening it up to to friends too as well. Yeah, uh, I thought, and that was a question I had for her. I know it wasn't the original intention, yeah. but yeah, you, you can, absolutely you could do it. You could have it with different sorts of relationships, yeah. not just romantic ones. Uh, just a great, great technology there. This is the Shift Podcast. It is time for the world of the weird things. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Hello, Greg. I've been hearing a lot about you and uh, your appetite for the weird things of the world. But uh, it seems like this week you've been tracking things that are beyond our own world. Am I right? Well, that's where the real weird lies, out in space. Well, and let's start there. Let's start start talking about this cosmic buffet, black holes, snacking on neutron stars. What's this about? So this is about something that scientists have been seeing but haven't been able to fully identify. This is a phenomenon known as fast radio bursts, which are just these very energetic events that last for maybe a second or two. And then they can repeat from the same spot in the sky or they can be gone completely. And there have been all sorts of explanations for it. You've had people say, oh, it may be alien communications, like we're overhearing aliens talk to each other. Or it may be a faulty microwave triggering a signal in a radar dish that hasn't been properly calibrated or it's black holes, or it's galaxies, or it's something we don't know yet. Uh, But right now, the leading candidate for the progenitors of these fast radio bursts are magnetars, young, extremely magnetically charged neutron stars that go through these star quakes where their magnetic fields keep shuddering and breaking and reconnecting. And because neutron stars are very heavy, but very, very small, you have more than one and a half times the mass of the sun packed into something that's about the size of a city and spinning at a significant percentage of the speed of light around its own axis. Whenever you have a, a violent turbulent event, yes, it releases an enormous amount of energy, but it's over very quickly because there's not that much area that's, that's affected. So the thought was, okay, that's great. That explains these, these radio bursts. It explains what's going on with with some of these signals that are recurring because these magnetars can go through it again and again. But then there are some events that match up with another detector, a detector called LIGO that's meant to catch gravity waves. And those gravity waves are are generated by events like colliding black holes, like 
uh, supernovae because they disrupt the fabric of space and time. So that's what this is about. That is where this whole idea of, hey, maybe black holes are eating neutron stars comes from. How rare is this? And are we into, would it be a cycle? Would you describe it as a cycle now? Or is it um, something that uh, reoccurs more often than that? No, these would be these one-off events. And we don't know exactly how frequent they are. But we do know that in the LIGO data are these very strange events that kind of line up with these fast radio bursts. And those events can best be explained by black holes eating neutron stars. Because what happens is, Black holes have very powerful tidal forces. So something that comes close to it is going to be torn apart by its gravity. And again, like I said, neutron stars have a lot of matter, but they are very small. So in about 80% of them are just going to be eaten in less than a second. We're, we're talking like literally less than the blink of an eye, 80% already eaten by the black hole. The other 20% kind of falls in around it because there's only so much that a black hole can eat because black holes, again, are also very small. They're essentially neutron stars that collapsed in on themselves, are even smaller, even faster, and even more energetic. But there's only so much they can swallow at a time. So essentially, they just belch out the leftover matter in this very powerful beam. And the whole event takes about two seconds or less, which again, leaves a mark in the record because these two very massive objects colliding produces a gravitational wave, but also they produce a chirp that looks an awful lot like a fast radio burst. Now, quick caveat, this is based on a simulation from that data that, that we've received from both radio observations and from gravitational wave observations. So that's one of those things that makes sense. So the thought is these fast radio bursts are probably not caused by any one thing in particular, but there's probably a mix of different events that will generate them. So you could look at magnetars and they could be a source of repeated fast radio bursts that happen in a cycle. Or you can have these black holes eating neutron stars and in that particular case, you would have these um, these events that are kind of just these one-offs because obviously you can't uneat the neutron star and eat it again. Um, and and then there's probably some there's probably also something else that's causing them uh, because there's a lot of stuff going on in space. It's very energetic. There's constantly something happening. And yeah, these these this might be a great explanation for these very mysterious bursts that we're seeing. Greg, I trust your words and not knowing the science like you do, uh, I, I put my full trust in you. But how do we know it's happening? And who's tracking oh. this? Who's tracking it? And uh, who's got the proof? LIGO is tracking it, as well as a number of radio astronomy, uh, astronomy projects around the world. That's basically their job to track this kind of stuff. And in fact, the fact that they've been noticing this and saying, well, what is actually all of this about is how we even got to this question in the first place. So there's an entire army of scientists whose job it is to track this and say, yep, this is happening. And they publish the data all the time. They publish the results all the time. They publish the papers all the time. So there's there's definitely proof that this is indeed happening. And does it have any, now I, I'm going to be careful with my words here because I'm going to 
use the word, does it have any impact on us? Well, it's got huge impact. Uh, it's got impact beyond belief, right? But what is the impact of these actually happening on our lives on Earth, if any? Ideally, nothing, because if one of these events is close enough to have an effect on our world, it's not going to end well. Um, one of the, the one of the things on the laundry list that will happen is the atmosphere boils off, so you can guess that it kind of goes uh, pretty dark right after that. Uh, so ideally, it's nothing. We learn about all of these events and we learn more about high energy physics and it gives us some ideas for experiments um, in our particle colliders and actually ideally those experiments will be used for faster, better, more secure communication, uh, possibly cancer treatments because we have absolutely done this before. We've looked at, hey, how does matter actually form and decay in these high energy environments and voila, we come up with, oh, if we do it this way and we aim at a cancerous tumor, they'll just hit the tumor and spare the living tissue so this is kind of like that kind of experimental science that can have all sorts of really interesting effects on our daily lives that we probably won't even really notice because it's it's that obscure but it will probably end up in in medical imaging and scanning and treatment technology with the understanding of astrophysics in there and how it actually has an impact uh yeah i can yes. see that that's uh, yes. an amazing study and uh you know Greg, I got to say, somebody paid attention to their math class and it wasn't Bruce. Um, so, you know, that's that's great. But the one thing that you said that um, got me worried is uh, the word ideally. Um, <laughs> that gave me yes. pause to think, um, ideally, it's not going to have an impact. And then you went on to explain all these catastrophic things that could end up happening. Um I got to get into what are some of the probabilities of something as dire? Very, 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 very low. Literally astronomical odds against. Astronomical. Because a lot of these, yeah. yeah, because a lot of these, a lot of these um, events are happening far away from us, and if they're happening thousands of light years away from us, we're probably fine. Um, it's really when we get into, you know, less than a thousand light years from us that we may need to worry, but even then they need to be aimed almost directly at us to have any significant effect. Uh, so again, the odds are extremely, extremely low. It's, it's entirely possible that we won't have to deal with anything like this for hundreds of millions of years. Although, slight caveat, oh, there is... I hate these slight caveats he keep throwing out. Although, no, go on. Uh, well, give this me is the science. This is science. We got to be complete. We got to have We got to have all the data for completeness sake. So there is a mass extinction in Earth's past about 400 million years ago that scientists think may have been caused by a supernova that just happened to go off just a little bit too close. So this has happened. We have recovered as a planet, as, as you can probably tell. Um, but if but a kind of a similar event would happen if one of these kind of uh, magnetar explosions or a magnetar or a neutron star being eaten by a black hole were to happen a little bit too close for comfort and the pole of the black hole just happened to be pointed in our direction. But again, even though it happened, it happened once 400 million years ago, 
we think, not not 100% sure because, again, <laughs> it's a little difficult to pin it down. But yeah, that gives you an idea. You know, Earth has been around for over 4 billion years. Happened, we think, maybe once or twice. So we, we should be okay. Like, we, we, this is not a thing you should be worried about. Greg, do you watch uh, science fiction? Some of these uh, low—I shouldn't say low budget because the uh, the effects are amazing. But uh, uh, some of the movies that have come out where they've actually had uh, catastrophic events that uh, have happened. Do you watch these? And uh, is there any uh, ever a time where you say to yourself, "Yeah, you know what? That could happen." I know exactly the movies you're talking about, and no, they're 99.99999% of the time. Oh, you look at these movies and you go, no, that's just, no, someone someone failed their physics class. It's just never going to happen in in the whole lifetime of the universe. It's just, it's not happening. That's where the uh, right-brainers start playing uh, with the left-brainers, left-brainers world, I guess, or the other way around don't know which one yeah, it is but but you can take it another way where you, you can you can have someone who's who's creative and, and and this has happened to me before where someone who's working on uh some sort of uh some sort of creative project will will say hey what can i make computers do in this particular case or uh what would these aliens look like if they developed on such and such world like there's there's work out there um, and, and actually, um, Andy Weir and his book, Project Hail Mary, which I'm sure will be a movie soon enough, comes to mind where you actually can use real science to come up with some very, very interesting things that you probably wouldn't expect and, and have never really seen before. Um, so that's, that's just something to think about. It certainly is. We were talking about the, the world of weird things and uh, in this case, not necessarily just the world, but uh, the entire universe. Um, hey, let's uh, just switch pace a little bit with uh, with another topic here, and that's uh, that old Planet Nine that's come up again. You know, the Planet Nine, does it really exist? Greg, you've uh, been writing about this. Uh, where do we stand? So this is, the, this is interesting because we've been looking for Planet Nine for something like 170 years now and in the process we found pluto started a massive debate about what constitutes a planet or not but it's still kind of elusive so essentially what happened is astronomers noticed that the kuiper belt objects these are the this is this belt of debris uh, that's left over from the creation of our solar system and it's in the outer reaches, it's dark, it's cold, it's where Pluto hangs out, it's, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of uh, light there, there's, there's a lot of really cool um, rocks that have a lot of data about our solar system when it was young. But, so there's a lot of interest in looking into it, uh, but there's been some anomalies in how they move. And these anomalies could best be explained, according to our current knowledge of physics, by a pretty large planet, something like a small gas giant or a super-Earth, a terrestrial planet that's about four or five times the mass of the Earth. So Planet 9 is thought to be this, you know, possibly small gas giant or super-Earth that's orbiting something like, you know, 200 times as far away as Earth is from the sun, and we keep looking for it, but every single study 
that looks at any sign of the planet being there finds it being absent. So one of the latest studies on this was essentially trying to look for um, infrared signals that maybe there's some sort of source of heat, which would be pretty consistent with the planet, somewhere out there in the outer reaches of the solar system and found absolutely nothing despite trying its hardest to, uh, to give this, this planetary candidate a chance. And the problem, but the problem with the study was that it essentially studied just beyond the orbit at which we expect planet nine to be. So essentially we're saying, all right, well, if we have, if we know that just beyond the orbit that we think planet nine has, there's nothing there. So, you know, hopefully it's, it's where we think it is, but we've studied up until the distance that we, where we think it's orbiting. And we've also found nothing. So then the very important question is, does it actually exist? Like, yes, there's this anomalous motion of these Kuiper Belt objects, but it's not like science hasn't had a history of seeing anomalies and not having the physics to explain them and coming up with different planets to possibly fill in the gaps. So for example, um, when ancient Greeks were trying to figure out, well, maybe the sun is the center of our solar system slash universe after all, to account for some of the motions for which they, they couldn't explain because they didn't have Newtonian physics yet. Uh, they said, oh, there might be a world that came to be known as Nemesis, but it's basically Earth's twin that's on the other side of the sun. Of course, we, don't, we know that that doesn't exist because Newtonian physics explains our motion quite well. Okay, we didn't have relativity and there were some anomalies in Mercury's orbit that relativity, relativity explains. The astronomer said, oh, we bet that there's a planet there called Vulcan that's disrupting the orbit of Mercury. Sorry, no Vulcan because we now have the right physics to explain it. And, this, and then you also had astronomers looking at the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter wondering where did these asteroids come from and, and how could this possibly be? There must be the remnants of a planet that we'll call Phaeton or Krypton or even just planet five. But then we've actually studied the asteroid belt and determined, oh, it's way too little stuff to be actually from a planet. This planet would have to be teeny tiny and how's it gonna even hold itself together? Plus now that we understand uh, the dynamics of solar system formation a little bit better, we know exactly what happened and how these, these objects can be trapped in these gravity wells. Um, so we don't need these other planets to explain things. So perhaps maybe the boring explanation is maybe there's some, some physics or some, some strange dynamics in the Kuiper belt that we don't quite have the physics to explain yet, but we will. And we don't have to rely on a planet to explain it because we cannot seem to find it no matter what we do. In academia right now, are there people out there that are thoroughly convinced that uh, they do understand it, they've got everything right, and uh, you know what, what we know today is what we know today, and then there are the other camps where they say, we don't know anything, we're, we're going to have to take a look at it and wait for that new physics that you're talking about. What's the tension like between those two, if, if it exists? It, it really doesn't. I mean, academics, if, if you are a scientist who's convinced that we know everything that we will ever know about the universe, 
you should probably quit. Like, th there's no reason for you to be there because wh what are you actually doing? So academics are in general open to new ideas, but there's definitely some people who are really hoping for a planet and they, they just really want to exhaust the search. And there's people who kind of say, well, you know, let's move on because un un until we find something that's that's more um, indicative that, that the planet is there and we have some sort of evidence that this search is not in vain, it's just a question of priorities at that point. That's that's really what it is. It's just a question of priorities and telescope time and, and the amount of resources that's being used to look for the planet. Though, to be fair, the resources aren't great. You know, the, the entire astronom uh, astronomy community of the world is not focused on, on finding Planet Nine. They have a lot of projects happening. They have this uh, brand new telescope you may have heard of that's producing some amazing pictures and they're very very interested yeah. in what it will unveil so yeah it's it's not it's not a huge debate but it is an interesting debate to be had because it's a question of maybe there's some interesting new little physics that we don't know about how solar systems work and we do find indications that our model that our models of how solar systems work are incomplete by looking at alien solar systems with our new telescopes and noticing that some things don't quite exactly line up. So it, it is very interesting time to be a planetary scientist. It is an extremely interesting time to be an astronomer. Uh, we are finding out a lot about how the universe works um, and how solar systems are formed and mature. My take back from that is uh, if you are one that's inclined to look up to the skies and wonder and think, pay attention in math class and physics class. Good advice? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's always a good idea to, to pay attention to, to science because we okay. live in a world where science really helps us and it's a good idea to know it because otherwise... What happens is that people who will exploit your gaps in knowledge will prey on you, and usually to separate you Greg. from your money as efficiently as possible. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 